Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Wednesday, the 12th of October 2016. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and the title of this week's episode is Using Maths to See Through the Sun with Dr. Alina Donner. Each session, we'll have co-presenters. We'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda. However, we do have an apology from Nadezhda this week. She and her family are heading out to their dacha. To wrap up each show, we'll hear a about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Today's interviews come from the Australian Space Research Conference that was recently held in Melbourne, and I'd like to thank Wayne Short, the co-chair of the conference, for giving me access to the conference. Thanks very much, Wayne. We've got two interviews today. The first is from Dr. Alina Donna, and she does amazing things with maths and using phase shifting. She very accurately predicts active regions in the sun that appear around the eastern limb, right on cue. Please be aware that because this interview was taken in a public place at a conference, there are some extraneous noises and sounds coming through. So let's cut straight to that interview. Now, can you tell us, Doctor, when you first developed an interest in science? Well, I was a kid. And I just loved mathematics. And then I remember my father was always cutting potatoes for me to look in, you know, like images in 3D. And then he used to explain me about this and this and this and about a bit about the sun. And then that's it. When I went to university, I just like, I went to the physics department, the physics department in Bucharest. And yeah, I was interested in astronomy all the time. And then I had an opportunity to do a PhD in black holes, and that was in Germany. And I learned about plasma physics, which when I returned back to Romania, I applied it to solar physics. And since then, I, I'm just doing solar physics because it's, you know, the sun is close to us. It's very good to have it just very close to us. <laughs> Fantastic. So I've just attended your talk, and you were explaining all about solar acoustic halos and waves that travel through the sun, and you use those acoustic waves to predict what's happening on the other side of the sun. Could you explain that in very general terms? All right. So we have sound waves trapped in the sun, and they travel everywhere inside the sun. When these waves travel through the interior of the sun and bounce back at the back of the sun, they may encounter some magnetic field regions. When acoustic waves interact with a magnetic field, energy, the power that they carry, is a bit absorbed 
absorbed. So they lose, uh, the acoustic waves really interact strongly with the magnetic field. And then the acoustic waves try to travel back from where they arrived, they started. But then there is what we call a delay, phase shift, or the travel time between starting point to end point is now different than the travel time between end point back into the original so this is what the magnetic field does to acoustic waves in the sound and we use this information so it's fantastic so it becomes a prediction model what technology do you use to detect what's happening in the sun so we use satellite observations we have what we call Doppler images of the sun. The images measure the velocity at the solar surface. The satellites of Solar Dynamic Observatory and one ground-based instrument which is named GONG, mainly Global Oscillation. And one of the instruments is actually here in Australia and they have six instruments that they keep observing the sun all the time. So these are the satellites giving us measurements. We take those measurements and we apply some mathematical models to these, assuming that we know what's inside the sun, what's the structure of the sun. We predict what's at the back of the sun. And those predictions come true with pretty good good accuracy. We still have to work to improve it, to get a spatial correct. So how long does it take an echo to travel from one side of the sun to the other? Hours. Hours. Now, can you use your model and your data to predict when there's going to be big CMEs coming out of the sun? Uh, I would be very rich if I can do that. (laughs) What we can see at the back of the sun with this technique that's called helioseismic holography is a big active region, a big sign of a big active region. And that active region can tell us a story, can tell us, okay, I'm big enough that I can flare, I'm big enough that I can generate a CME, but we don't know for sure if that's going to happen. The statistics stops at one stage. We know whatever is big should generate something important, something big. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denis. It's been fantastic speaking with you. Yeah, thank you very much. That was Dr. Alina Donner. Alina works at the School of Mathematical Sciences at Monash University as a senior lecturer. She's a member of the Monash Centre for Astrophysics and teaches large classes of engineering students, advanced engineering mathematics and science students. She's an expert in helioseismic holography, a mathematical method which can tell you how loud is the sun. She can detect solar quakes in satellite images from state-of-the-art instruments. Thank you very much, Dr. Donnell. And next we cross over to Adelaide for What's Up Doc, where we talk to Dr. Ian Musgrave from Astroblogger. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brennan. How's things? Excellent. Thanks, Ian. And I'm looking forward to hearing everything you've got for us today. Looking forward to telling you all sorts of interesting things today. Excellent. We're going to do a bit of a shout-out to some science teacher associations. Apparently, there's some science teachers listening to us, so that's good news. And hi to the South Australian Science Teachers Association, the Victorian and New South Wales Science Teachers Associations, 
who've been giving us shout-outs on Twitter. Thank you. And while we're thanking people, we can thank the Aurora Hunters in North America and Canada that are giving us a plug, and the astrophotographers. The Hoosier Association of Science Teachers in Indiana, the Science Teachers in Europe Facebook group, the Science Teachers Association of New York State Northeastern Section, the California High School Science Teachers, the National Earth Science Teachers Association and the OSU chapter of the National Science Teachers Association that are also giving us a shout out on various Facebook groups and to the Tasmanian Science Teachers Association and their online editor, Joey Kelk. And a big hello to the Science Teachers Associations too. I'm, you can't see me but I'm waving to you. <laughs> Very good. Okay, Ian, well, let's go to our usual schedule. Tell us what happened at uni this week. What happened at uni this week was we had our honours posters assessment. I'm not sure our listeners are familiar with how postgraduate education runs in Australia. Postgraduate education is quite different between different countries. We have, unlike America, where you have three years of a generalist undergraduate education and then you do a semi-specialised graduate education with lots of lectures which eventually morphs into a PhD. We do three years of specialist undergraduate teaching, so you specialise very early on. You go into science or medicine or something like that quite early on and then you'll do postgraduate early on. So you'll do a three-year science degree and then you'll do a one-year honours degree and with that honours, which is theoretically it's an undergraduate degree too, but it's it's actually an advanced undergraduate where you do a research project and you spend your entire year doing this research project. Yep. And then with that honours degree under your belt, you can then go on and do a, either a master's or a PhD. So round about now, our students present uh, a poster as part of their assessment, which uh, summarises where they're up to in their research project. This isn't the complete research project yet. It's you know, still got preliminary results and they'll be still be doing some experiments. Experiments don't finish for another month yet. So it gives you a snapshot of where they're up in their research. Yep. And so students uh, will have prepared a poster which summarises what they're up to in their research. But why are they doing a poster? If you haven't been to a science meeting, you know, most research is now presented uh, in poster format where someone will put all their research, put their research up in a poster format. It looks nothing like an advertising poster. It's a very condensed summary of research presenting your data in tables and quite advanced scientific research information. And then they get to explain it to their examiners about what they've done, what their research results mean, how they're going to take it forward and what it means for how they would advance in a, a postdoc and a doctoral dissertation and things like that. So that's pretty much what we'll be doing past week. That sounds fantastic. And now, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? The same things are up in the sky this week that were up in the sky last week. Venus, Saturn and Mars and the Moon. Unlike last week where we had this amazing dance with the Moon visiting Venus, Saturn and Mars in series, the Moon has passed on from the bright three and is now hurtling around the other side of the sky getting brighter and brighter and interfering a bit with seeing things. Mars has left the bright lobular clusters behind and is now heading off towards the wastelands of Capricornius where it will not encounter anything particularly interesting. Although I must say that Mars will, in the early stages of the week, encounter the bright star uh, monkey in the handle 
of the teapot of Sagittarius. So if you are interested in bright star encounters, you will see early in the week, not as exciting as the previous week when Mars was very close to the, the bright star Arcaus Borealis. Yep. which was the lid of the, the teapot. Mars is close to the bright star monkey, which forms the handle of the teapot. And that occurs on Saturday. So it's still, it's still a nice little encounter. And monkey is, is brighter than Caus Borealis, so it's, it's very nice to look at. And that's the last bright star encounter as Mars heads off towards Capricornius. And uh, in terms of interesting bright stars encounter, that's nothing else is going to happen for quite, quite a, a while in that area. Venus has gone past Alpha Libra, which uh, rejoices in the name of Zubin and uh, last week. But if you keep on watching Venus, it is heading towards the head of the Scorpion. And by the middle of next week, it'll be very, very close to the star Geshuba, which yep. forms the uh, centre of the head of the Scorpion. And so that will be very, very nice to look at. And that's it. that is leading up to what will be the highlight of this month where Venus passes between Saturn and Antares towards the end of the week. But the, the highlight of this week will be Venus be, be, being very close to the star the Sugar in the head of the uh, Scorpion. The Sugar's name actually means claw in various renditions of the uh, constellation Scorpius. The Scorpion, uh, the Sugar is either made the head of the Scorpion or it's made one of the claws of the Scorpion, depending on how the, the, uh, the Scorpion is drawn. And that's the most exciting, in terms of planetary adventures, they're the most exciting things that are going on. There's a small meteor shower called the Orionids that occur on, on the uh, 21st next Friday, or it peaks next Friday, and there's, there's not very many of them. You'll probably see about ooh, a meteor every eight minutes, and that's not very often. It's reasonably good because there's not too much interference from the moon this year. The last quarter moon will be a bit below the Orion. Very good. And now, meteors, a bit like background radiation. If you go out on any morning between 4 and 6 o'clock in the morning, what can you expect to see in terms of the background meteors? You just mentioned that you get one every eight minutes with the Orionids. What's the background rate? It varies a bit during the year. Round about now, we should be, uh, from the Southern Hemisphere, we should be seeing about four random uh, meteors per hour during the late morning hours. Yep. You'll see more in the morning than in the evening because in the morning, you're facing into the dust, the, 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 uh, the Earth's facing into the dust stream in its orbit. In the evening, you're facing away from the dust stream. In the morning, you're facing into the dust stream. Very good. Thank you, Ian. That was a tangent in itself. But do you have a tangent for us this week? Well, I, I do have a slight tangent following on from our, our NOVA that we, that we had. The NOVA's now dropped well below unaided eye. Visibility, lots of amateurs are still following it. For those of you who follow variable stars, if you have access to a, a very fast photometry, next time a bright nova comes up, try and observe it consistently for an hour or two, exposure times of about a second. And what they're looking for is to test a prediction that nova should show fast periodic oscillation in the optical light curves 
if gravity waves are helping to expel the envelope. Amateurs play an important role in observing a wide range phenomenon, and, and what they're uh, looking to do is to see that if gravity waves are playing an important role in expelling the envelope, you should be able to see rapid fluctuations in the intensity of, of the, the light curve, and if lots of amateurs can observe this with very short cometry times, this is yet another way in which amateurs can be involved in astrophysics. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Thank you very much, Brendan. It was a pleasure to be on, and may you have clear skies. Thank you, Ian. And as you heard from Nadezhda, she won't be with us this week, but we'll be back next week. So we cross straight over to the news. Here is the news for Wednesday, 13 October 2016. This first story is from a press release from the Max Planck Institute and their original paper published in the journal Science on 30 September 2016. Spiral arms, not just in galaxies. A protoplanetary disk around a young star exhibits spiral structure. A team of 24 astronomers from the Max Planck Institute of Radio Astronomy have found a distinct structure involving spiral arms in the reservoir of gas and dust disk surrounding the young star Elias 227. While spiral features have previously been observed on the surfaces of protoplanetary disks, these new observations from the ELMA Observatory in Chile are the first to reveal that such spirals occur at the disk midplane, the region where planet form takes place. This is of importance for planet formation. Structures such as these could either indicate the presence of a newly formed planet or else create the necessary conditions for a planet to form. As such, these results are a crucial step forward towards a better understanding of how planetary systems like our solar system came into being. One stunning photo shows a spiral structure on the protoplanetary disk. Planets form from these disks of gas and dust around newborn stars, but it's not yet known how such small particles can become as large as Saturn or Jupiter. These spiral arms could solve that mystery, though. So, the detection of spiral features in Elias 227 is a first step to determine what is the dominant mechanism of planet formation at different locations in the disk. They used the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, known as ELMA, to observe the protoplanetary disk around the young star Elias 227 at a wavelength of 1.3 millimetres. Congratulations to this team, and if you would like to see this stunning photo, just go to tinyearl.com forward slash protoplanetpic, all one word, all lowercase. Our next story is from a press release from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, the NRAO, and again featuring research at the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. ELMA explores the Hubble Ultra Deep Field and uncovers insights into the golden age of galaxy formation. An international team of astronomers has explored the same distant corner of the universe which was first revealed in the iconic image of the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, the HUDF. Just like the pioneering deep field observations with the NASA ESA Hubble Space Telescope, Scientists using ELMA surveyed a seemingly unremarkable section of a cosmos in what is called a blind search. 
This type of observation probes a specific region of space to see what can be discovered serendipitously rather than homing in on a predetermined target. The new ELMA observations, which are significantly deeper and sharper than previous surveys at millimetre wavelengths, and can see through obscuring clouds of dust, which obscures Hubble's view, and now reveal the previously unknown abundance of star-forming gas at different points in time, providing new insights into the golden age of galaxy formation approximately 10 billion years ago. Unlike Hubble, which studies visible and infrared light from bright cosmic objects like stars and galaxies, Elmer studies the faint millimetre wavelength light emitted by cold gas and dust, the raw material of star formation. Elmer's ability to see a completely different portion of the electromagnetic spectrum allows astronomers to study a different class of astronomical objects, such as massive star-forming clouds and protoplanetary disks, as well as objects that are too faint to observe at visible light. The new ELMA observations were specifically tailored to detect galaxies that are rich in carbon monoxide, a tracer molecule that identifies regions rich in molecular gas and primed for star formation. Even though these molecular gas reservoirs give rise to star formation in galaxies, they are invisible to Hubble. ELMA can therefore reveal the missing half of the galaxy formation and evolution process. To see these remarkable images yourself, Go to tinyurl.com forward slash Elmer Deep Field, all one word or lowercase. Our next story is from ICRA.org, home of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy. Australian technology installed on world's largest single-dish radio telescope in China. The 500-metre-wide telescope, known as FAST, which we have reported on in previous episodes, uses a data system developed at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy, ICRA, in Perth, and the European Southern Observatory, to manage the huge amounts of data it generates. The software is called the Nest. The software is called the Next Generation Archive System (NGAS) and will help astronomers using the telescope to collect, transport, and store about three petabytes of information per year from this telescope. That's about eight terabytes a day, or 100,032 gigabyte iPods filled each year," said Professor Andreas Wickenick, who heads up. ICRA's ICT program and help design the data system. Getting that kind of capacity is not too hard anymore, but the main challenge is transporting so much data and having the network bandwidth to move it around. The Chinese FAST instrument is an official pathfinder to the multi-billion dollar square kilometre array, the SKA telescope, to be built in Western Australia and South Africa. Professor Wickenex says, the NGAS data system, which is already used on telescopes including the ESO and the US NRAO Observatory and the Murchison Wide Field Array in outback Western Australia. For us, it's quite exciting to install NGAS on yet another telescope because the system is now being used all over the world, he said. Managing big data effectively is a huge breakthrough. So congrats to you and your team of data gatherers and shifters, Andreas. Well done.
Next is a nice sequel from the largest single dish to one of the most interesting designs I've seen in a long time called CHIME, the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment. This is located southwest of Canagan Falls in British Columbia, Canada, as part of the Dominion Radio Astrophysical Observatory. The CHIME proposed research plan is audacious. But first, a little background. The measurement of cosmic acceleration, the increasingly rapid expansion of the universe over time, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2011, and will say hi to at Cosmic Pino on Twitter, the Australian recipient. This acceleration either signals that a gravitationally repulsive dark energy dominates the energy density of the universe today, or that Einstein's general relativity does not correctly describe gravity on cosmological scales. The impact of this discovery on fundamental physics and astrophysics is revolutionary, and decoding the physics of cosmic acceleration requires new, higher quality measurements of the expansion rate of the universe as a function of time. Chime is such an ambitious project, it uses a frequency band from 400 to 800 MHz, looking at 21 centimetre radiation to map a significant fraction of the sky in the search for dark energy. The CHIME telescope consists of four parabolic cylindrical reflectors and associated radio receivers and correlators. The structure is 100 metres by 80 metres, that's 8,000 square metres, and the telescope has no moving parts and maps half of the sky each day as the Earth moves. The best description is to imagine one of those half tubes like those used in the snowboarding events in the Winter Olympics. The half tube is 20 metres wide and 100 metres long. Now you get four of these half tubes and lay them down side by side and run 256 dual polarisation feed antennas down the middle of each one at a focal distance of 5 metres. Of course, their data crunching is mind-bending, even for those who understand Fourier transforms and spatial correlation, which I don't. To see an image of this unique design, go to tinyurl.com forward slash chime array, and we're really looking forward to some interesting papers emanating from this ambitious instrument. And finally, we move from the present to the future via astrowatch.net, NASA's Mars 2020 rover to produce oxygen on the red planet, or move over opportunity and curiosity. NASA's next Martian mission, managed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, features a rover launched atop an Atlas V booster from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida in July 2020. The rover will not only investigate the red planet, searching for evidence of past life on Mars, but will lay foundations for future human exploration of the planet, as mentioned by President Obama recently. Testing technology essential for Mars colonization. MOXIE stands for the Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. Its dimensions are 24 by 24 by 30 centimeters, and the instrument will produce oxygen from the Martian carbon dioxide atmosphere at a rate of about 10 grams per hour. It is a 1 to 100 test scale model of the future instrument that would be efficient for human explorers on Mars. So at that rate, Mark Watney could remove his helmet in a quadrillion years. I've done the math. That's one with 15 zeros after it. Don't hold your breath.
However, according to mission designers, the object is not to produce a lot of oxygen. The object is to show that the process works on Mars. Martian atmosphere is 96% carbon dioxide and moxie will work just like a tree, inhaling carbon dioxide and exhaling oxygen. It will collect carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, compress and store it, then it will electrochemically split the carbon dioxide molecules into dioxygen and carbon monoxide. The dioxygen will then be analysed for purity before being vented back out to the Mars atmosphere along with the carbon monoxide and other exhaust products. A full-scale MOXIE-like instrument could be employed to produce oxygen on a larger scale, mainly for life-sustaining activities for humans. The system could also deliver liquid oxygen needed to burn rocket fuel for a return trip to Earth. Moreover, the carbon monoxide that will be also produced by the instrument may be utilised directly as fuel or converted to methane for use as propellant. Meanwhile, MOXIE is in its early stages of development. The instrument has recently passed the preliminary design review. So good luck NASA and JPL will look forward to a blast off to the next Martian mission in July 2020. That was the news. That was Astrophys. See you next week. Radio Wave.